John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John, whose name was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Please pray with me. Grant, O Lord, that your word might be spoken here with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Merry Christmas again, y'all. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Hunter Myers. I'm the student ministry director here at the Cathedral Church. And this first Sunday of Christmas, um, I would like us to consider an important question. When do we get it? No, you didn't misunderstand me. I'm not asking, what did you get for Christmas? I'm sure you've heard that question plenty this week. I'm asking, when do we get it? Because even though Christmas pageants happen every year, and every year is even more cute than the last, and we can affirm that here this morning, I still don't know if the richness of the story that was just shown in front of us has really sunk in. From generation to generation, we're going to reenact this gospel nativity story of Jesus. And from generation to generation, we're only going to be scratching the surface of Christ's incarnation. So let me ask this again. When do we get it? When does it sink in? And it seems like it could be a worrying question because how are you supposed to respond to something you don't understand? But perhaps that's actually the wrong way to think about the incarnation. As a matter of fact, maybe the good news for us this Sunday, this first Sunday of Christmas, is that we don't fully get it. The good news is that the incarnate Jesus is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery, a divine mystery to believe and to proclaim. And it is in believing this gospel mystery that we might rightly get anything. So towards the end of his life, the apostle John wrote his gospel account with a prologue I just read a few moments ago. And after a lifetime of following Jesus, it would be tempting to read the prologue and think that this was John's interpretation of the incarnation, right? After all these years of following Jesus, uh, we could approach this text thinking that it's an explanation of the sacred mystery, as if afterwards St. John himself might ask us, do you get it now? I don't know why he has a British accent. It just felt fitting, so. uh, (laughs) Again, the good news today, friends, is not is that the mystery of the incarnate Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the lens through which John commends us to see everything, God, history, and our own humanity. Put another way, John is not offering 
an interpretation of the incarnation. He's offering us an incarnation interpretation of everything. We see this when we say the church creeds, uh, in the, creed, uh, the Nicene Creed will say in just a few moments here, we believe in uh, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. While it would be tempting to, to read and proclaim those lines, thinking that we're trying to clarify the incarnation, what they were written for is to protect the mystery, that it is profound, it is a sacred mystery. It's not defining it. It's matter, as a matter of fact, it's inviting us to retain and sit in the mystery of the incarnation. So I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. You can find this on page 886 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And while you're turning there, allow me to offer a brief introduction to John's gospel. Most scholars believe that John wrote his gospel account after the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And of course, I took on the gospel of John at my college. Uh, my professor gave this illustration. He said, if the synoptic gospels, the, go the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are painted portraits of Jesus, then John's gospel is a work of impressionism, that John is more like Monet than he is like Michelangelo. He's working rich themes of light and darkness, sign and belief, new birth, resurrection, carefully woven throughout his account like a tapestry to illuminate Jesus to his readers. And we see this at the beginning of his gospel prologue. John opens with the, and unlocks the creation of all things in Genesis 1-1, reinterpreting them in light of the incarnation. He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This divine word that John introduces picked up the ears, pricked up the ears of his Jew and Gentile readers alike. For the Jews would recognize the creative and powerful word of God that was at, in their creation narrative and in the history of their prophets and people. The word of God meant something to them. And the Gentiles would, would think, when they hear the word logos, would think of the principal power and reality underneath the whole and ordering the whole universe divinely, emanating all things from itself. What John means is that this word is clearly God himself, the God who created all things and upholds the universe by his power. And of this divine word, John says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. After a lifetime of following Jesus, John is reinterpreting the origin and illumination of all things in light of this Jesus, this incarnate king. The incarnate Christ allowed John to see the work of God's eternal, creative, and illuminating nature in a new light. And in the second section, we see that John unlocks all of human history in light of the incarnation. Now, at this point, this is where uh, this John that John writes about in John 1, verses 6 through 8 is not the John of John's gospel. Y'all track with that? Okay. So let's call him for now uh, John the Apostle and John the Baptist. So here John introduces John the Baptist as the unique culminating role of the Old Testament history. For centuries, Jews had been awaiting their Messiah King to finally come, and just when things were heating up in their world, when the Roman Empire was, was cramp, uh, clamping down on them, a man is going into the desert, baptizing people, and proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're like, awesome. Here we go. It's finally happening. And what does John the Baptist do? He declares that he is not the light. 
He's the final line in a line of great old covenant prophets stretching back from Abraham all the way through Malachi. And his message is that the true light had come into the world and everything, all of human history, hinged on this Jesus and our response to him. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The incarnate Jesus wasn't just another milestone in an ancient Near Eastern kingdom subjugated to Rome. His life is the very culmination of all human history itself, the culmination of the work of God and the law and the prophets. And John says that how you, yes you, how all of us respond to the sacred mystery is the defining feature of your history and your life. While it can be easy to interpret yourself and ourselves in light of our lineage, our culture, our family, our preferences, our accomplishments, the incarnation incarnation casts a light on all human history as the story of those who either received or rejected the mystery of this incarnate king. And finally, in verse 14, we come to the very crux of this gospel mystery. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This eternal God, unchanging, mysterious, and unseen, was made known in Jesus. That's what we celebrate in today's Christmas pageant. It's nothing short of cosmic and mundane. The eternal word of the Father lying in a manger. St. John Chrysostom, that's right, we've got a third St. John going on here. He put it this way. He said, For if the men of the old time, meaning in the old covenant, could not even bear to look upon the glorified face of Moses, who partook of the same human nature as us, if that just man needed a veil which might shade over the purity of his glory and show them the face of their prophet mild and gentle, how could we creatures of clay and earth have endured the unveiled Godhead, which is unapproachable even by the powers above? So he tabernacled among us that we might be able with much fearlessness to approach him, speak to him, and converse with him. Our author today, St. John the Apostle, unlocks the key of our own humanity in light of Christ's incarnation. Because of the word made flesh, because of Jesus taking on our humanity, the fullness of God pleased to dwell in a body just like ours, we can now participate by grace what Christ is by nature. That same divine life that is eternally present in him in the beginning was made manifest among us. And we are invited not just to know that, but to receive it. In John's prologue, we see that the, the mystery of the incarnate Jesus is the interpretive key to God, history, and humanity. And yet, if we're not careful, we can miss a subtle movement going on in this text. He begins with a high and lofty reality, the, the relationship of word and God, the eternal relationship there. And then he moves into the reality of the eternal word and his creation, light and world. And at the end, after the incarnation, it brings something into focus for us the relationship of son and father. The incarnate Jesus brings God's eternal and relational reality into focus for us to see and receive it 
as he really is. This is the same St. John who wrote letters to where he called Christians little children. And he didn't do that in order to belittle the believers, and he didn't do that in order to belittle us, but rather to remind us what is the, the relational reality that is now at work for those who are in Christ Jesus, this incarnate king. God is our Father, the eternal word and only begotten of the Father is our Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit is our advocate, guide, and comfort. But more simply, this incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus, is the foundation for our adoption into the family of God. So my friends, I've got to ask again, do we get it? In a sense, I really hope not. The incarnate Jesus is a reality too wonderful for me to express and too lofty to attain, yet he is so embodied and real that the children before us today bore witness to the same profound mystery, and St. John spent an entire lifetime reflecting on this Jesus to fit it all into 18 concise verses. So if we have received this Jesus, if we are receiving him, his life, his death, his resurrection, how should we respond? How should we respond to this mystery that we don't fully understand? What does it look like to not only have an interpretation of the incarnation, but to live a life in light of Christ's incarnation? For more than about 14 years of my own life, I lived, uh, I grew up in a Christian home largely, and I heard the gospel faithfully proclaimed for about 14 years of my life. And I knew in my head that grace and truth came through Jesus, because I heard that taught a lot very clearly, but for some reason, I couldn't believe that it applied to me. My sin, my shame, it was, yes, Jesus was good, but my shame, I mean, come on. No one's that good. And the same guilt and shame that kept me going to church services was the same guilt and shame that kept me from believing and receiving that this beautiful reality that God's grace applied to me in Christ. I didn't get it. But I'll never forget for the first time in my life in the little chapel, looking up and believing Jesus really is that true, that beautiful, and that good. It started to slowly set in that the gospel wasn't just about how fallen I am, but how good God is, and how loving he is, and how good Jesus is. And that's a mystery, I'll be honest, I still don't really understand. But I do believe it, and I see it. I see it at work when I draw near to the inspired word of God with an incarnation lens, and I see Jesus jumping off of every page. I see it when, I, when we draw near this table to receive Christ, the sacrament of his body and blood, the mystery of God's grace revealed in Jesus. It changes everything. It changed everything for me. But in order to get there, I had to reinterpret my own story. I had to stop trying to cram Jesus into my sufferings and figure where he fit in and instead reverse it and remember that it's my sufferings that are participating in Jesus's that it's his glory that I am seeking, that his suffering, his life, his joy, his suffering, all of that, I'm participating in that. I needed an incarnation interpretation. So church, today, I pray that we're willing to reinterpret our stories, our histories, and even how we think about God in light of this incarnate King Jesus. And I pray for you. Whatever that is, you need to reinterpret and understand and receive in your story, your history, and how you understand God in light of the incarnate Jesus. And I can promise you it's not about just getting it. It's about receiving him. John makes that clear. May we receive him deep into our hearts this day and always. But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, 
who are not born, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Amen.